0: We do agree that you are worthy, and we are so thankful that you are our Father, and that you have sent your Son to make us brothers and sisters in Christ, and Lord, we pray now that you would open our eyes to your scriptures so that we could become uh, more holy and closer to you and more expectant of your return, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> I want you to picture a young child full of excitement running up to his mother, holding out a gift for her with a great big smile on his face. And it could be something the child made in preschool. It could be a pretty flower that he found out in the yard, and he's just holding it up to her, thinking she's going to love it maybe even a piece of candy that he got from Trunk or Treat. Now, would any mother you know turn down that gift with a look of disgust on her face when her child hands it to her? I mean, even if the preschool project looked more like a mess than a gift, or if the flower looked more like a weed, or if that piece of the Halloween candy was the kind that she never ever liked. You know, almost any mother that we would know would receive just about any kind of gift from their child like that with smiles and excitement and thankfulness. And they would be so happy, the mother would be so happy that the child wanted to give it to her and she would also want to make that child feel good about giving something and and, and loving someone and being generous and thinking of others. But now, instead of a mother receiving a gift from her child, think of God receiving a gift from one of his children. <clears throat> from you or me or any one of his many, many other children. Is God always happy with the gifts that we offer him, with the offerings that we want to give him? Does he delight in every gift we offer or every offering we make? Now, you know, I think many people would be thinking automatically, well, of course God is happy with anything we want to give to him. He's our kind heavenly father who loves us and wants to encourage us. And if human parents are excited about gifts from their children, even with gifts that don't seem so exciting, wouldn't God be even more so? I think that would be the common thought. Well, you know, to tell you the truth, there is a certain kind of gift or offering that God is absolutely not thrilled with. <clears throat> in fact, there is a certain kind of gift or offering that God will not even accept. And we see this in the book, Old Testament book of Haggai, where God tells the prophet Haggai about the kind of offering from his people that he will not accept. And from this, we can learn what could make our offering to God unacceptable. What could that be that would make God say, No, I'm not accepting that? And as we look into this also this morning, we're going to see what brings us the blessing of God. And when the Bible talks about blessing, From God, he talks about him enhancing us, him giving, pouring good into us to make something even better. That's a blessing and enhances. So, we know that in the Old Testament book of Haggai, just to kind of get us up to speed, Haggai was God's prophet to the people of Israel, or the people of Judah, the southern part of Israel, who were coming back to the land of Israel after 70 years of of captivity in Babylon. Babylon. He was bringing his people back to the homeland with the specific instructions to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That was the main part of bringing them back, was they were coming back to rebuild the temple. So in 538 B.C., a group of just under 50,000 Israelites returned to Judah, that southern part of the land of Israel. And when they came back to Judah, they began to rebuild the temple that the Babylonians had just totally destroyed and robbed of all of its treasures. But these foreign neighbors that had been moved in to the land of Israel, <clears throat> because that's how... Uh, they did things back in those days. You would take people out of their land, bring other people into the land so they would lose their nationality, they would lose, you know, their, their cohesiveness, their communities. So these foreign neighbors that had been moved in, they did not like the Israelites building back their temple. They did not like them building back their community they strongly opposed this rebuilding effort and so after the foundation was laid for the temple the oppression got so much that they quit building the temple and then year after year passed and the rebuilding never started back up and the people just kind of got used to that and they just accepted it after a while And they didn't have the determination or whatever it took, the motivation. They didn't have that, what it took to get back to the Word, the work that God sent them to do, the whole reason He sent them back. So here they return in 538 B.C. They lay the foundation. They get stopped. It's now 520 B.C., and everyone just seems to be totally satisfied with the, with the temple just lying in ruins. <clears throat> and God tells them through the prophet Haggai that to, dis, that to just neglect getting back to the temple project is really dishonoring to him. It's like they're treating him with great disrespect to just let his house lie in ruins. And so... God tells the prophet Haggai to tell his people this that they are now living in really a state of dishonor or disrespect to God. Now what happens when God's people just sort of push aside or ignore or become lax with the things that God wants them to do? Or... What happens when God's people all of a sudden or over time just kind of lose sight of what God thinks is important and to them, to us, whoever, it's not important anymore? What happens with that? Well, in this instance, God's people just got used to the temple lying in ruins. I imagine it was just a slow, gradual you know, losing of their, their vision to build the temple, losing of their motivation, their determination to do what God sent them back to do. And you have to think that when they came back, because Cyrus, that was part of his proclamation, he was going to send them back to build the temple, and he sent a lot of the treasures back that the Babylonians had taken away. And so it was just a slow, gradual, I imagine... getting used to things the way they are and not getting back to what they came to do. And my question is, does that sort of thing ever happen to us? Especially us who live in such luxurious abundance and prosperity. Do we ever drift away from our determination to put God first or to really focus upon Him or to make Him a top priority? Does that happen to us? Well, you know, before we look more into that, let's look what God says to His people in this matter of the temple being neglected. What difference does it make in this instance? When God's people take their eyes off of Him, and then they get their priorities all mixed up, and they lose all their motivation to do what God has sent them to do. Well, God is going to ask them a question, and it seems kind of funny at first. It's a question about holiness and defilement. And it's in chapter two, in verses 10 through 13, or what we're starting with <clears throat> And it says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, now, he was the king, well, the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and so they became rulers of the empire. And Darius was one of those kings of the Medo-Persian empire. And now we're, uh, we're beyond Cyrus. And it says, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. So he's going to ask them a question about the law. And this may not relate, you may not relate to this just automatically because it's a little bit different from what we usually think, but it says, if someone carries consecrated meat, that would be an animal set aside and slaughtered, for the worship of God. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, that would be other stuff used in the worship of God, offerings. If it touches some other part of the offering, does it become consecrated? See, he's saying like if a priest puts some meat in the fold of his garment maybe he's going to take it transport it somewhere and that meat is holy because it's been dedicated to God and if that garment, not the meat but if the garment touches another item does it make that other item holy because the meat was, was holy the priests answered no you know the holiness doesn't travel through the garment does it it was, it was the meat that was, that was uh, dedicated to God. <clears throat> then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact, now we're going into defilement, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, those other items of worship, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. So what's going on here? Well, Haggai, God tells Haggai to ask the priests about this transmission or transference of holiness versus the transmission or transference of defilement. You know, when something is ruined. Actually, that word defilement, it, it has the original meaning of being trampled. But it, it, it applied also to things losing their purity things, you know, losing their value. When some animal or food or utensil or cup or bowl is set apart for the worship of God, then that item becomes holy or sacred and is no longer to be used for ordinary usage. It's made out of the same material, whatever it is, But it's put aside just for the worship of God. And so now it becomes holy. No longer to be used for ordinary purposes. No longer to be used for common usage. And the question is, if the priest wraps a piece of consecrated meat in a garment, and that garment brushes up against another item that's used in the worship, does the other item become holy? No. The sacredness of the meat doesn't transfer to another item through the garment, right? It's the meat that is sacred. The meat has been set aside for the purpose of sacrifice and worship. But then again, we go into the area of defilement. When something good is defiled you know and, that, and and in the law in the law of Moses if somebody touched a dead body they became defiled they became unclean and then they had to go through a ritual cleansing anybody who would touch a dead body and it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing they may be just burying their father or something like that but anybody who touched a dead body they would not be able to worship God until they quarantined, in a sense, excuse me, for a seven-day period and having special washing, body washing, on the third and seventh day. And then that rendered a person clean from their defilement. So really, defilement was transmitted more easily than the holiness, right? Now you're wondering... Why are we talking about this? Well, look at verse 14 here. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people, these returned Jews, and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. He is saying that these Israelites who came back to the land are living in a constant state of defilement. It's as if they had all touched dead bodies and had never gone through the cleansing process. So everything they touched, any offering they touched and they wanted to give it to God, it was defiled. He couldn't accept it. And until they took care of their defilement, God could not accept their offerings. So there is a type of offering that God cannot accept, isn't there? And it would be an offering given by someone who is in a state of defilement. Now, before we apply this, how it might apply to us, let's look at what caused their defilement and maybe the cost of the defilement. Look at verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> now, you know, this passage kind of goes back to the time and forward to the time, so you've got to kind of separate it out. But it says, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When they wouldn't get back to the rebuilding the temple, consider how things were, consider how life was going. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, you know, of grain or whatever, they would find only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. So their harvests were, were shrinking, weren't enough. I struck, this is God speaking, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So we're talking still here about the time of negligence. We're talking about them not getting back to rebuilding the temple. Because that is the issue of this whole book, this short book of Haggai. He's going to them, telling them, you left negligent the rebuilding of the temple. They were brought out of captivity. They were returned to their homeland at the command of God. And then through the proclamation of this powerful emperor, this king, they were told to rebuild the temple. And we know they ran into significant opposition, and that stopped the rebuilding, and that's understandable. But then they just did not get back to it. It wasn't their passion. When they were forced to quit, they didn't have that fire smoldering underneath. They didn't get together. I mean, I'm just assuming this because the way things turns out. It looks like they didn't get together and pray together. When can we get back to building the temple? When can we get back to doing what God sent us here to do? Looks like they didn't hold prayer meetings about it. They didn't dream about it. They didn't talk about it. They just got used to living without the temple and the temple lying in ruins. And that was the thing about it. They were allowing God's house to look like a a pile of rubble. And God said, that's dishonoring to me. And even though it wasn't a big deal to them, it was a big deal to God. And he said, look, when you were neglecting the temple, when you didn't care, when you wouldn't get back to it, look at your crops. They were half or less than what you're used to getting. And I struck your crops with blight and mildew and hail. He was trying to get their attention. Yet he said, in other parts, that even then you didn't return to me. even when God was punishing them, disciplining them, spanking them, they still wouldn't turn back to Him. What does it take for God's people to ignore Him when He is severely punishing them? I mean, what kind of a mindset would we have to have to receive these punishments from God and yet not even think about him, not even think about, hey, you think God is trying to tell us something? I'm just trying to put this into our circumstances, you know. Because I think if we look at it in certain ways, we can see how easy it could be even for us. And remember here that the sufferings, the droughts, the adverse conditions that they were encountering were outlined in the law. Chapters throughout the the law of Moses would say, and if you do this, I will punish you with this. And if you do this, I will punish you with this. So they had it all before them. It seems as if God and his desires weren't a high priority to them. Therefore, whatever they did and whatever they offered was defiled. And I take from that that living in a state of little concern for the things of God leaves people in a state of defilement. And they just forgot about getting back to the rebuilding. Showing that honoring God was not really on their radar. And even when he punished them, they still didn't think of returning to him. But we saw earlier, and this is referring to the same thing, basically, that there's a good ending here. It says, from this day on, this is the Lord... He's talking about what happened when they didn't get back to it. From this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? The answer is no. Until now, the vine and the fig tree the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. So he says, right now you have nothing because I haven't been blessing you and you've used up all your food because it didn't last through the time that you needed it because you weren't getting back to building the temple. But we saw in an earlier chapter, and this kind of you know, takes into account that, <clears throat> that when they heard Haggai's you know, uh, preaching to them, They woke up, and they started back building the temple. And so he's talking about that here. Until now, the vine, fig, tree, and pomegranate have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. I think there's a real important principle here. Their barns were empty because of their lack of caring. Their vines and fruit trees were bare of fruit. He says, But starting today, since you have finally listened to me, you're turning back to work on the temple, the blessings are going to be on their way. And he's saying that when everything's gone and empty the blessings are coming. We know what that shows to me is that God always wants to bless them, bless us. That's what He wants to do. And sometimes we get the picture that, and outside the church, this is a picture people have of God. He's just waiting to punish us when we do something wrong. But that isn't the message of the Scriptures, is it? It's really the opposite. He's just waiting for us to do something right so He can bless us. He'd much rather see us turn to Him, avoid the discipline, and bless us, enhance us, pour His blessing upon us. That's all through the Scriptures. So, what can we learn from this as children of God Not under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ, not commanded to build rebuild the temple. That's not the the charge we're under. Well, I believe for us, we must make certain that we have not grown complacent toward God. We can fall into living in a state of defilement. We can just slowly get there, just like the Israelites did, if we begin taking God for granted. And I think it's especially true of us who live in this luxurious land of abundance and comfort. Have we become defiled? I'm amazed when I go from here to a bigger city and you look out and you see endless theaters endless shopping centers you know anything you want there's 500 of them there endless restaurants you drive into a place there's six restaurants right there in that parking lot you see I think we could easily In our land of abundance, just kind of slide into a place where we become complacent towards God. And I think when that happens, we have to ask ourselves, have we become defiled? Because the Israelites, their minds just went away from God. And they just didn't get back to building the temple. He just wasn't first on their minds. I think that can happen anywhere. What things from our culture do we fill our minds with? Do we seek moral purity? What types of movies and shows are we watching? What types of books are we reading? What are we doing online? I mean, we live in a minefield of immorality, don't we? It's just there for the taking. What does that type of exposure do to us? Well, it can defile us, can't it? And it really harms our relationship with God if we just allow ourselves to be drawn into the wrong types of entertainment, reading, whatever. And we know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's always out to hurt us and destroy us. And so really what we have to do even if as things are so well now they're not so peaceful are they? They're kind of chaotic. We must seek shelter in God even when we don't feel like we're under threat. We don't want to live in defilement. We will not we don't want things to work against our relationship with God. We, want to, we don't want to invite them into our lives. It diminishes us. And here's what I have to do to fight against the onslaught of Satan. I have to fill my mind with Scripture regularly. I have to let the Scripture come in and wash my mind and take it into the right direction. God's Word has to be a steady diet. Because we have so much out there taking us away from God's Word that God's Word has to come in, <clears throat> excuse me, and fill our minds and become a part of who we are. And then we grow in love with God's Word. And the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God. You know, it's not just, you know, you read something and it affects you. With God's Word, you read it. You meditate upon it, and the Holy Spirit takes it and enhances it. It builds up our inner person. It helps our attitudes. It gives us the motivation to do the right things. And if we start to just kind of drift off, like, well, we're to have all of our needs met. I mean, that's, that's the natural thing, isn't it? If we have all of our needs met, we don't really look to God. But if we get into the scriptures every day, it tells us, it helps us, it motivates us to look to God and to realize how much we need Him even when it doesn't seem like it on the outside. And then we could think of our marriages. Are we acting right? Are we fulfilling our role in our marriages? in our families in our churches in our communities are we living lives that uh, don't that aren't complacent toward God are we trying to be ambassadors for God in whatever we're doing again the scriptures will take us there and so here's, here's what I think we can, we can go with our nation right now seems to be in a very, very delicate place. We have elements in our nation that are trying to move us further and further away from God. And, you know, we're having these <clears throat> excuse me, political fights, you know, Marxism, socialism, capitalism. We have those fights, but I mean, literally, we are witnessing people pushing up or, or, you know, really trying to, to bring evil into our society, calling what is good evil and what is evil good. And here we are. We're the salt and light. And it takes people who are into the scriptures to be salt and light. And as things keep getting darker we can be coming brighter and we can be helping individuals and people to come over to Christ and, and to, to enter the light. So we want to pray for our nation. We don't want to see it go worse and worse. But if it does, we can still be the answer. <clears throat> and we can be more the answer the darker it gets. So we must heed the call of God to be true to Him. And when we do, when we live in that light, he accepts our offerings. And he blesses us. And he enhances us. And when, just like we saw earlier in the book, when Haggai brought this message to them that you guys have fallen down and now you need to get back to the temple and they 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 were encouraged and they did it, And then it said, God stirred their spirits. So when we choose to take a good step, God steps in and helps. But if we choose to turn away from Him, that's us. And when He pours good into us, when He blesses us, it continues to enhance our good for Him. And we will experience this promise from this day forward, looks like I'm, I'm uh, lost. <laughs> Can you give me that very last uh, frame? Because they had the right attitude, he said, From this day on, I will bless you. Let's go for that. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for our nation because we see some very, very troubling things out there. We see people who would take us into a darker, darker area becoming stronger and stronger politically. And so, Father, we pray that we as Christians would rise up, that we would get into your word get into serving one another, talking to those outside the church, talking to the unchurched, making friendships, sharing the gospel. And Lord, may may we be ones who do not settle in for defilement, but are cleansed because of your word and because of our uh, choice to follow you. And so, Lord, protect us from evil and help us to do right and give us the motivation, we pray, to follow you, to love you, and to help others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.